0: He is risen. Forgive me, this is my one Sunday a year I do this. Uh, I, I find it hilarious, these little traditions that we have as Christians, and specifically us Presbyterians. You know, it, uh, it's got to be really confusing for somebody maybe coming in for the first time, seeing some of the things that we have done, or people only coming a couple of times during the year. Maybe you're asking, why is everyone so peppy? especially that preacher guy. And yes, it might have something to do with two cups of coffee. But what's with the, this tone of victory in the songs and the speeches that are given? What's going on with this, especially on Easter? And it's important to understand because the only way to understand why Christians rejoice in the victory that we talk about Jesus having on Easter is to understand what this day represents. I mean, because we have a tendency to miss the point as human beings, don't we? I mean, I heard a story some time ago, and my apologies, some of you have heard me say this before, of the time Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson went camping together. They pitched their tent under the stars and they went to sleep. And in the middle of the night, Holmes wakes up Watson and says, Watson, look up, tell me what you deduce. Watson says, I see stars, millions of them. And Holmes asks, well, what does that tell you? Well, Watson pondered a moment and then said, well, astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially millions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that it's a quarter past three. Meteorologically, I suspect that it will be a beautiful day tomorrow. And theologically, I see that God is all-powerful, and we are small and insignificant. Why? What does that tell you, Holmes? Holmes was silent. Watson, you idiot! Someone has stolen our tent! (laughs) Watson presented a lot of data. Failed to put together the right story. <laughs> Similarly, many Christians today and throughout our culture, we're talking about eggs, we're talking about pastel colors that we're all wearing, and uh, the changing of the seasons, and so many miss the point, fail to put together the story of why we're all here this morning, why people are gathering together in churches in the first place, and to celebrate what? Surely not eggs and bunnies and things of that matter. So what does this day represent? Well, on Good Friday and Maundy Thursday, we discussed what this season is all about. Why Jesus died. What what did Jesus die for? I hope one of you was paying attention. What did Jesus die for? Our sins. See, I'm not trying to trick you. (laughs) But what is a sin? That's a tougher question. It's a failure to do what is right. It happens when we purposely do something wrong and when we fail to do something good that we ought to have done. Both of those are sins. So by that definition, who has sin? Well, That's that's all of us. We all have sin. We've all sinned. So what does sin do? What's so bad about it? And that's an important question to answer because apparently we all have it. Well, Isaiah 59 verse 2 says that your sins have made a separation between you and God. A Separation between us and God, that doesn't sound good. No, no it isn't. Especially when we consider that our God is in the heavens. And if God is in heaven and we're separated from him, well that only leaves us one other option on the other side of eternity. And that's kind of an uncomfortable thought to think about. That's why sin is such a big deal. As uncomfortable as it is to think about. And I say all this point of the finger at myself, too. You know, I, I'm just as broken and sinful as the next person. You can just ask my wife if you're not convinced. But I'm not perfect. I, I don't belong in any of these beautiful stained glass windows. You know, I'm, I'm just as broken as the next person. And... I imagine it's the same with everyone here. None of us are perfect. None of us have done all the good that we ought to have done and perfectly stayed in step with the right thing to do 100% of the time. And that's true whether you've been, and we're all stuck in that boat together, regardless of how long you've been a member at this church, how long where you have served or what titles you might have held over the years. We're all stuck in this sinking ship together. Aren't you guys so glad you came to church today? This positive, uplifting message. Well, and I say all this not to make you guys uncomfortable or to to make a stern point, but it's so that we understand the significance of our problem. I don't want to downplay that. And, you know, some people will even say, you know, how could a loving God send people to hell? Why? That doesn't make sense in the first place. Well, the question itself is wrong. You know, God doesn't send people to hell. We're doing a great job sending ourselves. In each of our sins, we are sending ourselves there. That is what our works have gained us. And far too often we have rejected God's offer to save us from our consequences. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself because I want to say God is a loving God. That point is true. And he has loved you enough to do something about it and not just leave us to our demise. For we couldn't bear the punishment of sin ourselves. So he did it for us in the greatest act of love ever done before where Jesus himself bore the wrath of God on the cross for every sin ever committed by every person. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us as much, where it says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Some people call this the great exchange. We gave on the cross Jesus all of our sins, all of our wrongs, all of our failures. And in exchange, he gave us all of his righteousness. That is the most one-sided deal of all time. That It truly is. I mean, that is like, that is like trading my old car that was leaking gas and oil all over the highway in for a Rolls Royce. That doesn't even capture how big this is. Because now when God looks at me because of that great exchange, God doesn't see me in all of my brokenness and sin. He doesn't see my shame. He doesn't see all those things that I hope no one knows about. He sees the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, when he looks at me. He sees me as forgiven that every charge that could ever be labeled against me is forgiven. And he looks at me like I'd never sinned in the first place. That's a big deal. You guys all know what it's like when someone says they forgive you, but you know they really haven't. Don't pretend you don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> Maybe you're the one, I don't know. It's like, it's like, oh, I forgive you, but I'm never going to forget what you did. <laughs> At the family reunion 10 years from now, they're still giving you that evil eye. That's not how God is. God doesn't look at you like that. No matter what sins you've committed, if you believe in what he has done on the cross. 1 Corinthians 1.8 says that you will be seen as blameless before the Father. That's very different than not guilty. Not guilty means we looked into you and you're kind of shady, but we're going to let you slide. Blameless means the sting of even having an accusation against you in the first place is erased from the record. That's how God looks at you if you were in Christ Jesus. That's a big deal. And that is great news. And if we are blameless, then we are welcomed into God's heaven when we pass away someday. That is great news. And yeah, that sounds great and all, but how do I know these things are true? You know, there's lots of other religions out there, and there's tons of other faiths and philosophies. Well, well, how do you know all this is true? Well, (laughs) that's why everyone's rejoicing on Easter this year. Because the grave is empty. And here's what I mean by that. Jesus could have just said that when he died on the cross, these things would happen. If he was a modern-day charlatan, as so many are, that's exactly what he would have done. He would have said, oh, I will spiritually rise from the dead. No one would ever be able to prove it false. How do you prove that he didn't spiritually rise from the dead 2,000 years ago? You couldn't prove it. There would be no hope. you just have to take him at his word. But that's not what he said. He said he would physically rise from the dead, and in three days— he gave an action, a physical measurable action, and a time frame. Two things you could measure, two things you could verify. Do you guys realize how quick Christianity could have been extinguished if this was all made up? I mean, all they had to do was show the body of Jesus, and this all would have been over with. Christianity could have started on Sunday and be done with by Monday. And think of all the enemies of Christ and the apostles, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, the Romans, all any of them had to do with all of their power and political clout was to display the body of Jesus. Yep, the guy's still dead. You guys can go home. Made it very easy. Oh, it's been five days. He said three. You guys can go home. But that didn't happen. Why didn't it happen? Because the tomb was empty. The tomb was empty. And that is why we celebrate Sunday after Sunday, not just twice a year, but Sunday after Sunday, because we have verifiable evidence that your sins have been paid for, that our ticket to heaven has been purchased for us. That's greater news than any Rolls Royce. This is literally paradise that I'm talking about here that has been opened to you, paid for by someone else. You just have to take your ticket. That's what Christ has done for us. So as we move towards our conclusion today, consider what this means for you. Consider that these truths aren't just stories that we take comfort in or philosophies that we fall back upon. These are truths that are rooted in history. And you can read about the account of the, of the risen Christ, not just in the Bible. You can read about, the, about Jesus in the writings of the historian Josephus. You can read about the resurrected Christ in the writings of the great Ro- uh, Roman historian Tacitus. You don't just have to take my word for it. That's the beauty of this. So if this really happened with the same certainty that we have that Washington crossed the Delaware as part of history, this has implications for our lives, doesn't it? You know, I had the privilege of growing up in this church, this very church, actually. And my whole life, you know, if you would have asked me, I I would have identified as a Christian if you would have asked me. But I can remember the exact moment that my faith actually became real, that it became my own. And I was on one of those cheesy youth group retreats. Those of you who are laughing know what I'm talking about. And I was just outside of the conference center, just contemplating the events of the weekend. And I didn't have this voice speak from heaven or anything profound like that. But just this simple thought came to mind. And I realized, I really do believe these things. I really do believe Jesus went to the cross for me and really rose again from the grave, that this really did happen in history. And if that really did happen, I realized that has implications for my life. And from that day forward, I didn't just say that I was a Christian. That was the day I became a Christian. That was the day I started actually following Jesus, and that's what, that day I began, what, be, what evolved into a true friendship that I now treasure more than anything else this side of eternity. And in the same way, the resurrection of Jesus, the bloodstained cross and the empty tomb has implications for you as well. So think it through. Do you believe Have you admitted to God and to yourself that you're a sinner? Have you asked Jesus for forgiveness of your own sins? Have you repented, which simply means committing your ways to Jesus, following him, living life his ways, following him as your Savior and Lord? Don't leave here before you settle your business with God. I'll be up here in the front after the service if you have any questions or thoughts or you just want prayer, I'll I'll be here. I'm not going anywhere. But my challenge to all of us here this morning is if you want to look deeper into these things and not just take my word for it, I encourage everyone here, get your hands on a Bible. I'm sure there's one in your family house somewhere. Bibles are everywhere. And read the gospel according to John. See these claims for yourself. See how the teachings and the life of Jesus might just affect you. I know it has affected me. One last illustration and then I'll close. I had a family member join me some time ago for a worship service, uh, similar to this one some time ago. And uh, he told me the most shocking thing you know, he grew up in a different denomination. There's no reason to say which one. But he told me afterwards, after the service was over, he come up, comes up to me and says, John, that was amazing. I, I'm used to church feeling like a funeral where you're supposed to feel bad the whole time. And the priest is making me feel guilty the whole time. But this church, the songs that you sing, the way that the pastor talked, felt like a celebration. And I was wowed. Because he hit the nail right on the head. That we're, we, The reason we gather here isn't to mourn the death of Jesus. We're not here to mourn primarily over our sins and for failing to measure up to what we know we could do. There's a place for that. But that's not why we gather. We gather as Christians to celebrate To celebrate what Jesus Christ has done for us in our helpless estate. We celebrate the empty tomb and are grateful for all the other things he has done for us. We celebrate these things and that is why we are so cheerful. That is why we are so peppy at times, not just the caffeine. And why we sing the way we do. And why we will be here next week doing the same thing, because we are here to celebrate that same thing, the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.